for us, that has been a complete whiplash and a roller coaster of one interpretation of the world being, hey, look how dire the healthcare situation is, but this is all going to melt down, gear up, this is, this is going to be terrible. And then the other side just being completely off of that. And so building a company and getting your first traction through that and just hunkering down and just going through it, that has been an incredible roller coaster because on the one hand, growing at all is, I say, a feat. And it was for, from some lens, but, but still like managing what does it mean to be like a venture-backed startup and not growing fast enough like most people are, right? Hi, I'm Nikunj Kothari, and welcome to Rollercoaster. Today, I chat with Karan Talati. Karan is the CEO of First Resonance, a company that is developing the next generation manufacturing software platform for modern manufacturers. Prior to this, Karan was the first engineer at Sense360, and before that, an engineer at SpaceX. In this episode, Karan talks about his journey to founding First Resonance. Let's dive in. Hi, Karan. Welcome to the podcast. Happy New Year. How are you doing today? Happy New Year, Nikunj. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. It's a Tuesday. We have a lot going on this week, but I, I don't have any complaints. I'm very much looking forward to, to speaking with you and this new year. Likewise. To begin, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your childhood. Can you share a bit about where you grew up and who's in your family? I had a pretty standard suburban upbringing. I guess that was the middle of it, the beginning. It's a bit hazy. My parents were both immigrants uh, that came to America without much at all. I grew up when I was young, it was like a one bedroom apartment. And I used to hear my parents coming in at 3 a.m. from like night shifts working at a convenience store, you know. Reflecting back on that, it just seems very distant. I, I got to benefit from my parents achieving the American dream and watching that process go along. And so I'd say I'm pretty fortunate from where we started as a family to, to where I am now and where my family is. That's great to hear. And it seems like you were exposed to technology and globalization early on, courtesy of your dad moving around a lot. What effect did that have on you and your extended family? Yeah, so my dad worked at Motorola for over 25 years. And that's how I spent most of my childhood in Illinois, which is where Motorola was headquartered. It was very interesting through the 90s, right? My dad was a, his a big break was getting a job as an assembly line technician at Motorola. And then he he, he grew from there, but... Through the 90s, as he had grown in rank, Motorola also started this bigger trend of globalization and outsourcing its manufacturing first throughout the entire world. So it was localized manufacturing. So European markets had European manufacturing, Asian markets had Asian manufacturing. But then that started to consolidate into first Southeast Asia and then to China specifically. It was very interesting for me. My dad was traveling a lot. He'd be gone for weeks at a time. And this endured for a longer period of my, let's say, like early teens. So not great. We were confused. We were excited. Dad gets to travel the world and, and whatnot. But of course, being a kid in retrospect now as well, for a parent to be gone for an extended period of time like that definitely was not the best. But of course, that gave me uh, a lot of time and an insight on how technology was developing and evolving globally 
and for me now, it's fun to reflect on how I'm involved in manufacturing. We'll talk about first resonance later and what globalization trends are uh, changing and shifting from what I witnessed from my childhood. Was your dad a big influence on you taking up engineering as you were thinking about high school and even college? Yeah, definitely. He was working in Motorola. He used to bring home the latest and greatest prototypes uh, of phones. And this is pre iPhone, right? So I think everybody, hopefully, maybe not the younger listeners, but maybe most of the listeners will remember the Razor and just that kind of dynamic era of the late 90s, early 2000s of these like flip phones, candy bar phones, slider phones and, and whatnot. And I very much got involved with this underground phone hacking scene as well. This is pre-Reddit, these forums of like-minded individuals that were hacking and customizing things. It was just, I think everybody that's in technology now ha- like has some story and connection to some sub-community like this. And for me, it was a cell phone hacking community. Yeah, and that was because my dad worked at Motorola and I had the opportunity to get exposed to those from a very early age. I remember pre-App Store, I had a black and white Nokia phone and I would uh, go on these forums to find new games to put on and try to like sideload them. And I remember the age of those forums and people have it easy now. They have an App Store, they can add whatever they want. Those were the days. But you decided to go to University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign to pursue mechanical engineering. What were the early days there like? Yeah. And I know, Nikunj, that's also your alma mater. It's great to always connect with fellow Illini out, out West as well. For me, I went to college to study mechanical engineering because uh, of a few reasons. One, I loved cars at that time. I was a you know teenager that loved uh, fast cars and that's what drew me to mechanical. But another thing there was while I was very much into this like kind of hack culture, programmatic kind of things. I didn't want to spend my life in front of a computer. Lo and behold, I think that's what a lot of us ended up spending our time doing this past year, if if not more. So yeah, I went to college um, to study mechanical engineering because I was very interested in cars and didn't want to spend so much time in front of a computer. Quickly learned that my expectations for mechanical engineering weren't exactly what I had thought mechanical engineering was. I thought it was designing cool, new, sexy designs, cars, aerodynamics, carving the clay model. Turns out it was a whole bunch of stress calculations. And if you didn't have your vector notation, you were going to fail the test. So demoralized me, but I like kicked on with it and luckily enough, found other things to excite my interests at University of Illinois. So it was just a great place to be. I remember being in computer labs and I was an electrical engineer and I'd be there till one o'clock, but I would listen to all my Mechie friends being there at four o'clock playing with the smallest things on CAD. And I, I remember those days thinking, I'm like, glad I'm not a mechanical engineer, but you ended up learning a bunch of computer science in college as well. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting now, early 2010s, right? A lot of information, wealth of information started spreading through the internet around how you quickly bootstrap these applications. I luckily enough was at U of I where there's a very strong CS background in history and heritage as well. So being surrounded with friends who were studying CS, going to hackathons with them, that was very much what my junior, senior year ended up being when I became disinterested in mechanical engineering, or at least I was maintaining a hybrid interest in both. I once had a summer internship where it was so boring, and I won't name the company, but it was so boring that I got the the chance to just learn Python through the summer. 
as well as Korean. So learned two languages in a summer and that was a lot of fun. And then having just gone through that exploration in college, I ended up bringing that into the workforce, which was pretty exciting. You graduated in 2013 and ended up with your first full-time job at SpaceX. That seems like the ideal fit given your mechanical engineering and computer science background. What were your years there like? You're right. It was a pretty ideal fit and I didn't even know. I'd made a really good friend at the University of Illinois during my senior year of college, Jason Roslin, who, who had turned me on to this company in Los Angeles that are building rockets and is going to send astronauts to the ISS soon. And at that time, I said, sure, why not? I was actually afraid of LA and didn't really know what I was getting myself into. But then as soon as I got there, the rest is kind of history. I, I got to SpaceX in time as it was really catching public attention. And of course, like solving these major technical milestones and achieving these major technical milestones. From the time I got there, just the first commercial launch of Falcon 9 V1.1. And for anybody that follows the kind of rocket lineage, we'll know that no one rocket is the same, but at the same time, 1.1 was really that big leap forward for a SpaceX in terms of its new engine and architecture and everything. So from the first you know, commercial launch of that to by the time I was leaving, landing orbital class rockets on land and in the ocean, that's just technical production, manufacturing quality, Man, we did a lot during those few years. And of course, SpaceX has continued to. So that was just an incredible adventure and a time that I very much look back on fondly. I still remember watching that first video and sitting there in amazement on how we're able to land rockets back. And now it feels, oh, yet another rocket. What's the big deal? We just take it for granted. But you spent three years at SpaceX and I think decided to scratch your startup itch and became the first engineer at Sense360. Why did you leave your dream of working for the space company and joining a consumer behavioral intelligence company? In just a matter of a few years, SpaceX had more than doubled in size. I had the opportunity to get involved with so many things from automating the space simulation lab to getting involved with the reusability refurbishment data flow and how we were going to use the data from manufacturing to empower those refurbishment flows. And in the meanwhile, the company had grown so large, I had been growing myself quite a bit. And I frankly just hit ceilings in terms of my growth and what I wanted to do with my technical technical growth on the software side as well as, yeah, I kind of, you, you just mentioned it. I had a startup itch I did since college. And so with the company growing as much as it did, definitely started feeling less like a startup than it was in when I got there. So I decided to go headfirst, join a small startup, a small office above a FedEx, six people. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into at all. And when I got there, I was really like, wow, what did I do? I used to have cold brew on tap and free Froyo. And here we were grinding from no customers to something. And I was ready for a new challenge. So I made that jump. And you were the first engineer there, right? Yeah, that's right. I was the first engineer there. And at this time, the company was tiny, right? We had no recurring revenue. We had zero customers. And one of the, one of the things that I really appreciated, the CEO, Ellie Portnoy, what he did was every customer that we got, he uh, put up a shirt of that customer on the wall. Watching that go from a blank wall to a wall that was full of customers, that was incredible from like a business side 
Uh, so I got to watch the trials and tribulations and the curve road that, that it took to get there, as well as the technical, getting from a uh, concept of a data pipeline and intelligence into a repeatable and scalable data pipeline that was powering some really large companies and being there from the ground floor of building up that analytics product. That was a pretty incredible opportunity as well. In hindsight, this seems like the perfect opportunity or learning to prepare you to start your own company. Did you feel that way as well? In hindsight, it it does. And in hindsight, I definitely appreciate what I got to experience and the team that I got to work with at Sense360 to get me ready for building first residence. I didn't have any sort of expectation then of that. I didn't know that I was going to found a company at all. But having seen what it really takes and the conversations that are had and the tough decisions that need to go into what that very earliest uh, stage of company building looks like, I am so grateful that I got to see that because I think my expectations just would have been misaligned had I just gone from a a 6,000 person company to, to starting first residence now. From cold brew coffee and froyo to maybe catered lunch to nothing. That's exactly. Exactly. And now I'm just on my way to working back up to the cold brew now. <laughs> but you do decide to leave Sense360 in a few years and start First Residence in 2018. For folks listening, tell us a bit more about the founding story and what does the company do? So in 2018, and a little bit before that, I started getting very excited about all of the things that were happening in this new space market. And then beyond that, you take in other streams of innovation, things like autonomous vehicles, drone technology, delivery, electrification. Luckily, a lot of the friends that I had made at SpaceX have now gone on to this next uh, generation of companies. And that just got me really excited. At first, I was like, great. I always had this thesis that companies like SpaceX and Tesla would be like the Facebook, the Apples, the, the Googles of the hardware industry. And we're very much seeing that pan out. But, but I actually wanted to join one of these companies initially. I started looking around and found that most of these companies were very much in their initial side of R&D, but some were really starting to experience the pains of what that inflection point between R&D and quote unquote production look and just a lot of those same themes, the same challenges that I had been very intimately involved with at SpaceX were recurring and just realized there was a huge gap in people solving for what we believe now at First Resonance to be uh, a shift in how hardware is built and how it's delivered. And so we started the company with this thesis that manufacturing and hardware is fundamentally going to be shifted and changed with with the information era. So while manufacturing came up on the industrial uh, era, now we're in the information era. And that means that things are going to just get turned right upside on its head. We are leaning into that and empowering those types of companies that are using data from across their design, manufacturing, and operations to fuel those workflows. So whether you're a manufacturing engineer, quality engineer, design engineer, being able to very quickly and collaboratively exchange data to build a better product, a safer product, and build that faster to get it to market That's what we empower and that's what our manufacturing platform ION is being used for now across companies in aerospace, automotive, robotics, and some very interesting other verticals as well that we're very keen on 
to someone who's not super intimate with manufacturing, is it safe to say it's like Figma? Figma used to be just a design tool that designers use. Figma made it democratized so that everyone in the company can use it and see how things are getting affected. Would you call it something similar to that or is that simplifying it too much? No, I think I, I love that you bring up that example because at First Residence, we love Figma and we're huge users of it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're spot on there in manufacturing. And this is the same thing that has happened in software too. And the whole DevOps movement in the past 10, 20 years of taking a release engineer to a quality engineer to a site reliability engineer and folding that into uh, a unified workflow and empowering engineers to to solve problems. That's what we're doing. And that's, I think, what Figma has done for design. So in manufacturing, you'll have your design engineers and even within that mechanical design engineers, electrical design engineers, fluids, aerodynamics. And then downstream, you have mechanical manufacturing engineers, quality engineers, process engineers, industrial engineers. I could go on and on. What ION does is bring them to a collaborative space where they could quickly define and exchange that information and what ION does for companies is, and this is what we've heard from customers, is it, it shifts their vocabulary to be much more product-oriented and goal-oriented as opposed to process-oriented. And that's the big innovation and the big change that we see happening in the information era just end-to-end. We happen to be in an industry as well that has a huge heritage in innovation being in the process. So you could think of things like Six Sigma and Lean and Kanban and all these coined terms in aerospace and automotive documents that are hundreds of pages, thousands of pages. And all these pages are actually just being upended anyways with new regulations happening with what does it mean to not have an airplane that has passengers take off from an airport, but rather having a, a few people inside of an electrically powered composites aircraft flying through a dense urban environment. So all these things are you know, going up in the air anyways, and the huge opportunity and the exciting thing that we get to work on with our customers is that how do you replace all of that heritage in thousands of pages of documents with uh, streamlined workflows and efficient data exchange to significantly accelerate time to market for these new types of products? I'm always curious about hearing some of those hard moments in the early phase of a company's journey. Can you share a few of those moments with us and what did you learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'd be lying if I said we're over those moments and all those moments are just something to be looked back on. We're very much experiencing moments as we go. Something that I'll mention here is as first-time founders going into uh, a fundraising process and the really accelerated learning there from what innovation means what the customer needs, and then what venture capital needs. To put it a little mm -hmm. frank there, it's somewhat opaque to, to first-time founders. And I don't think that the information is quite out there to really understand what one is getting into. The reality is that a lot of companies getting into tech, it means more than just innovating and solving a problem. It goes beyond that. It's innovating and solving a problem in a certain timeline that helps you get to the next phase or milestone. That was a very hard learning for myself and my co-founder, who we are both first-time founders. It is a choice to get into that. And I wish somebody had told me that sooner. Nevertheless, I think uh, as part of that learning journey, it was still the right choice for us. And we made that choice uh, consciously. And we're excited about taking the best of what that innovation model and that venture 
model looks like and bringing that to manufacturing. Again, it's tough, but it's not necessarily wrong. It's just a choice. How has First Resonance evolved over the years? Has your founding thesis or insight that led you to start the company stayed the same? Yes. And what's really amazing, the very fundamental core theses and principles of why we got into this, who the customers that we were looking to work with are, what types of problems they're looking to solve, that's actually stayed consistent. It's amazing to show new resonators, as we call ourselves, join the company and point to a vision statement that we've had. And there's a bunch more preceding this, but the last line of the vision statement says, the sky tomorrow will look different than the sky today. That has somewhat turned out to be true with some of our very first customers building products that are quite literally changing what the sky looks like and the problems that we had seen them run into from you know, what does it mean to ma manufacture using new manufacturing methodologies such as additive manufacturing or composites manufacturing in a dynamic and distributed way that flows information from design into manufacturing and then into operations and servicing. How does that look and what kind of problems are going to arise? We've dealt with some of those problems in our past lives. This was very real for us at SpaceX and those problems are very real and we're, we're just entering this era. I think the 2020s is really going to be where a lot of these stories get told. So we're excited to be just at the forefront of that wave. Speaking of 2020, how was COVID for you and the company? Did you have to change your roadmap or plans materially? It's amazing. Reflecting back just a year, we had gotten our first commercial traction just at the beginning of 2020. In January of 2020 was when we got our first customer and our first revenue. So it's wild to think back to that because we now have more than 15 customers and we've quickly grown, you know, from that to having multiple six-figure customers now too. So we're very excited about that progress. In 2020, we didn't change the product roadmap per se because we were very much still building alongside our customers and building technically and functionally. That said, when March hit, we definitely had an infrastructure roadmap effect, let's say. So to empower some of our customers that were very used to using the software in their factories and having their engineers next to their technicians and for that to be completely changed, we supported them. We had to make sure our application didn't fall down and like support that multi-site build out. But we're very lucky that from the get-go, we were building on modern technology and we were building cloud native where out of the box, we were able to support those customers. So it was just a matter of solving bugs throughout, not so much uh, product roadmap changes. As you think about scaling from 10, 15, 20 customers to hundreds of customers, how have you thought about going deeper in a particular vertical or helping a particular customer versus building more generic features that's useful to all? So... As we grow and as we understand more about our customers and their real problems, our market and how solutions have been historically deployed in the market and what innovation we want to bring to it, this gets very nuanced. And we do at First Resonance have a pretty methodical way of keeping track of what is an enterprise uh, feature request, what is a scale feature request, what is a product functionality and feature parity with a uh, functional competitor. What does that look like? So... I think uh, we're still very much in the grind of figuring out what the right prioritization is across that and really having our customers ideally pay 
for whatever that next scale is, whether it is functional or infrastructure related and really sticking to those first principles. Going through 2020, we had some great advisors in our ears, including investors and people in our network that really just prepped us for aligning our strategies with business fundamentals and making sure that we were making good sound business decisions, not necessarily rooted only in one customer or enterprise customers or our vision or dollars in, but really being very nuanced and making the tough decisions about balancing our our cash, our runway, our growth, our targets with what we were trying to get done as a company. Through it all, by balancing that, I'm lucky to be backed with a team that is capable of, of making some of those hard calls. We picked up customers through 2020 that were facing some of those same challenges. And all of our customers are building hardware. So these are very real challenges for them and very existential challenges for them. So it, in a way, actually, 2020 made it easier to communicate efficiency and alignment and making sure that we were there for each other surviving and, and thriving for when the world was ready to get back to it. As you turn the page on 2020, what should we expect from First Resonance in this upcoming year? We're very excited about this year because going from what we feel as zero to one in 2020, if 2021 is anything like that, and we very much expect that it outpaces 2020. We hear a lot about this roaring 20s. I'm hopeful. Let's get the vaccine out there and, and get back onto it. But we are very fortunate at First Residence to have a front row seat to what these Roaring Twenties might look like. It sounds a little bit cliche, but we're very much working with the companies that basically embodied Mark Andreessen's It's Time to Build post. We went from zero to over 15 customers now. We're working with customers that are building autonomous vehicles, electric airplanes, using new types of manufactured materials, right? Rewriting the rules with the FAA and the Air Force of what those materials can look like. I think what you can expect in 2021 is really hearing a lot more stories um, from us as a company and, and our growth in the number of companies that we're working with. But more importantly, the stories of our customers and the problems that they're solving and the new types of efficient productive, sustainable types of hardware that we're all going to interact with here as the, the world turns the page on a pandemic. And I'm an optimist, but a brighter, a cleaner, more sustainable world. And so we're very much looking forward to, as a picks and shovels business ourselves, sharing those stories from our end users, as well as the huge feats that they're accomplishing in all of these endeavors. I'm, I'm really excited for this decade. I feel in and maybe this is my view. In 2010s, we saw a lot of like software, like a lot of massive software businesses. There were a few hardware ones like Tesla and SpaceX, obviously doing big things. But I'm excited in this decade, we can have really interesting hardware companies that uh, fundamentally change what we do. We always end the show by asking our guests to share a time that felt like a roller coaster. And what did you learn from it? And I know we've talked about 2020 a lot, but I'll bring it up here again anyways. I won't lie, 2020 was quite the existential roller coaster from getting our very first customer and being late to that as it was, right? But it takes a lot of work to get customers in an industry that is so quality critical. So to ride on that high, being at the top of the roller coaster, cruising through that in February and the March hitting us in the face, we, we had to make some hard decisions as a company, unfortunately. 
as a lot of companies did. And uh, it wasn't pleasant as we were just getting our stride to, for example, let go of some of our valuable team members and bite the bullet on that and plan for the survival of the company for the case that the worst was you know, yet to come, so on and so forth. I think the reality is nobody knew in March, April, what things were going to look like. I think the optimists thought that things would wrap up pretty quickly and we'd be back to it. And the pessimists had a, had a much grimmer view. I think there's health and societal kind of ups and downs that we face together as a society. And there's also economic. And I think the economic stuff has not necessarily, let's say, correlated with what the world is really seeing. And so for us, that has been a complete whiplash and a roller coaster of one interpretation of the world being, hey, look how dire the healthcare situation is. This is all going to melt down, gear up. This is, this is going to be terrible. And then the other side, just being completely off of that. And so building a company and getting your first traction through that and just hunkering down and just going through it, that has been an incredible roller coaster because on the one hand, growing at all, is I say a feat and it was for, from some lens, but, but still like managing, what does it mean to be like a venture backed startup and not growing fast enough? Like most people are right. Like that has just been quite a roller coaster for us for 2020. It was just a huge spoon of, I don't really even know what to call it, but it was uh, quite the ride and it continues to be, I think as we all continue to trek into the unknown. It'll be interesting to see how 2021 plays out. Thank you, Karan, for taking the time today and sharing your incredible journey. If people are interested in learning more about ION or First Resonance, how can they get in touch with you? Thanks, Nikunj, for having me on. It's been incredible chatting with you about the ups and downs and looking back on the, both the goods and bads of, of my life and, and what we've been doing more recently at First Resonance. If anybody wants to get in touch uh, with me, feel free to reach out directly at Karan at firstresonance.io. If you're building hardware or even thinking about building hardware, would love to get in touch with you. I'm very excited about the new innovations and what innovation in general looks like. I think we're just entering an era where, you know, moving beyond the single pane of glass and, and software and taking technology and immersing it into the world around us, like that's just starting. We're working with many of the companies that are doing that. And we're very excited to support those companies that are just starting on their journeys there. Awesome. Thanks, Karan. Great. Thank you, Nikaj. Thanks for joining us this week on the Roller Coaster Podcast. If you like the show, please make sure to subscribe and review it. If you would like to know more about the podcast or have feedback, please visit our website, rollercoaster.life. Till next time.